Good morning, everybody, and a very warm welcome to morning worship at Hillhead. Our call to worship comes from Psalm 111. Shout praises to the Lord. With all my heart, I will thank the Lord when his people meet. The Lord has done many wonderful things. Everyone who is pleased with God's marvellous deeds will keep them in mind. Everything the Lord does is glorious and majestic, and his power to bring justice will never end. The Lord God is famous for his wonderful deeds, and he is merciful and kind. Our opening hymn of praise is number 47 in the hymn book, and I invite you, if you're able, to stand with me as we sing, Give to our God immortal praise. And so we come to God with our prayers of praise and adoration. And at the end of this prayer, we will join together in the Lord's Prayer, which, as is our custom, you are invited to pray in your own first language and preferred style. So let's pray together. Holy God, Scripture tells us that when there was nothing, you created something. When there was only chaos, 
you created order. When there was only darkness, you brought forth light. Light inextinguishable, no matter how deep the darkness. Order discernible, even within apparent chaos. We praise and thank you for the stability and predictability of the world we experience. That day follows night and night follows day. That autumn follows summer and that winter will follow autumn. That water is consistently wet and ice consistently cold. That honey is always sweet and lemon juice is always sour. That apple trees produce apples and that cattle give birth to calves. All this taken for granted predictability. All this stability and certainty that gives us a space and an opportunity to love and to laugh. Spaces and places to play and explore. Wonders to discover and truths to discern. All of this is a sign of your kindness, mercy, love and grace. With the psalmist, our minds are blown as we endeavour to express our delight and wonder. With the scientist, we revel in pattern and repetition similarity and order. With the dancer, we spin and turn in exuberant delight, enjoying our physicality. And with one another, we endeavour to offer our praise. Kind, merciful, creating and sustaining God. As we offer our praises, we are also moved to pray. Prayers that acknowledge human frailty and sinfulness. Prayers that seek forgiveness and the opportunity to begin again. Prayers that acknowledge our place within the vast diversity of your creation. And so it is, we join together in the words given by Jesus to his followers when they asked him how to pray. As we say together, Our Father... Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trust us against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power and the glory, forever and
Who likes going on picnics? Anybody like going on picnics? A few people like going on picnics. I wonder if some of the younger people would like to come and have a little bit of a picnic this morning. Let's get the blanket out, shall we, and put it on the floor so we can sit on the pink pink, pink blanket? Picnic blanket. There we go. Anybody want to come and join us on the picnic blanket? Maybe yes, maybe no. Thank you, Bonnie. I'm glad somebody's come to join us for our picnic. Right, let's see what I've got in my bag. Okay, got some crisps. Would anybody like a crisp? These are just corn chips, so I think they're probably okay. Is she allowed one? Yeah. Oh, a handful. Jolly good. <laughs> Would you like a crisp? Okay, should we pass them up so that the others Matt Rowe can have one if they would like to? Would you like to have one? If you don't have to, if you don't, what else have I got? Uh, I've got an apple for my bit. <laughs> a bruised apple for my picnic. Okay. Thank you, Graham. Uh, I've got some water so I can have a drink. Thank you. Uh, shall we see what else I've got? Got some bread. See how, what we've got by way. I've got quite a lot of bread. And I've got one, two, three, I'm quite hungry, four, five bread rolls. What have I got there? Some fish. How many fish have I got? Two fish. Five rolls and two fish. I very nearly didn't get them. I went to the shop yesterday to do my shopping, got home and remembered that I'd forgotten my loaves and fishes. But the loaves and fishes remind me of a story in the Bible. Can anybody think what story that might be? Okay. Okay. (laughs) two fish and five loaves that's true yep it is the story of the fish loaves and fish one day Jesus and his friends had been out talking to a huge 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 big crowd of people get my words muddled up this morning that's a bit worrying loads and loads of people there were big tall men and there were little tiny children there were ladies and there were girls and there were boys, and they'd been having a lovely time, and Jesus had been telling them stories, and it was really exciting and interesting, and oh dear, the tummies were starting to rumble. People were thinking, well, do I go home for my tea, or my lunch, or do I stay and listen to another story? And the stories were so good, they wanted to stay and listen to another story, so the tummies were getting really, really, really rumbly. And Jesus said to his friends, well, I think you should go and get some food for these people. Can you hear the tummies rumbling? They're really hungry. And they went, but there's loads of them. We've not got enough money. In fact, we'd need to go to work for three whole months to get enough money to buy them, to have like one crisp worth of bread each. And then one of the friends of Jesus looked and he spotted a boy who had perhaps a basket and he had five loaves about this big and he had two fishes that didn't come from Sainsbury's and weren't ready cooked and vacuum packed but he had two fishes 
and his five loaves. And, and well, um, Jesus, this, this boy's got a picnic. And Jesus took the picnic and he said a prayer. And they started to share it out. And do you know, that was enough for everybody. Everybody had some breads and some fish and maybe other things that people found in their pockets or their bags that they'd forgotten about. Who knows? And all those rumbly tummies stopped. And it all happened because one boy was willing to give his bread and his fish to Jesus. I wonder if you know that that story is in all four of the Gospels. Not many stories are in all four Gospels, but this one is. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But only one of those Gospels makes a mention of the boy. Do you know which one that one is? Which one do you think it might be? Any thoughts? You can have a guess, and if you're wrong, it won't matter, because the grown-ups don't know either. Who thinks it might be Matthew? Put your hands up if you think it might be Matthew. Who thinks it might be Mark? You think it might be Mark? Okay, who thinks it might be Luke? Quite a few people think it might be Luke. Who thinks it might be John? Yep, it's John. John is the one that mentions the boy. And I think that's really interesting because all the other Gospels seem to be much more interested in children than John is. But John's the one who tells us about a small boy who gave his lunch to Jesus And because he gave his lunch to Jesus, everybody was able to have some lunch. And I think, if nothing else, that story reminds us about how important it is to listen to children and let our children be part of our church life because often they can bring us thoughts and ideas and insights that our brains have just got too cynical to notice because we've got old and tired and grown up. So thank you for coming and sharing my picnic and for listening to that story about Jesus and the boy whose name we don't know, we'll never know his name, but this boy gave his picnic to Jesus and because of that, everybody was able to have some food. And we're going to sing one of our favourite children's songs now. I think it's one of our favourites, we sing it quite a lot. Who spoke words of wisdom and life?
Our Bible readings this morning, three readings, and they come from the Gospel of St. John. The first one is from chapter 2. Two days later, there was a wedding in the town of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine had given out, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no wine left. You must not tell me what to do, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. Jesus' mother then told the servants, Do whatever he tells you. The Jews have rules about ritual washing, and for this purpose, six stone water jars were there, each one large enough to hold about a hundred litres. Jesus said to the servants, Fill these jars with water. They filled them to the brim. And then he told them, Now draw some water out and take it to the man in charge of the feast. They took him the water, which had now turned into wine, and he tasted it. He did not know where this wine had come from, but of course the servants who had drawn the water knew. So he called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone else serves the best wine first, and after the guests have had plenty to drink, he serves the ordinary wine. But you have kept the best wine until now. Jesus performed this first miracle in Cana in Galilee. There he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Our second reading is from John 4. Then Jesus went back to Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. A government official was there, whose son was ill in Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea in Galilee, to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to go to Capernaum and heal his son, who was about to die. Jesus said to him, None of you will ever believe unless you see miracles and wonders. Sir, replied the official, come with me before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Jesus believed, the man believed Jesus' words and went. On his way home, his servants met him with the news. Your boy is going to live. He asked them what time it was when his son got better. And they answered, it was one o'clock yesterday afternoon when the fever left him. Then the father remembered it was at that very hour that Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he and all his family believed. This was the second miracle that Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. And then from John 20. In his disciples' presence, Jesus performed many other miracles which are not written down in this book. But these have been written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through your faith in him you may have life. Amen.
couple of months ago, I invited suggestions for ideas for sermons or series of sermons that people would find valuable rather than the kind of usual thing where I just serve up what uh, the lectionary suggests or what fits with the special Sundays that we're celebrating. I only actually had one response to that, which wasn't entirely unexpected because I found the same one I did at my previous church, but there we go. Uh, The one response was that we explore the seven I am sayings of Jesus in the fourth gospel. We did do that um, back in the summer of 2011, and it's certainly worth looking at again at some point. But for various reasons, I didn't think we could do that justice in the few weeks left before Advent. So instead, and with apologies to that person, I've opted for some overview services This one looking at the seven signs, or as the Good News Bible so horribly translates it, seven miracles of John's Gospel, the seven signs of John's Gospel, and next week we'll look at the seven sayings in John's Gospel. I'm not really sure you could call either of these sermons. They're more along the lines of what our North American friends would call a Sunday school lesson, more didactic than charismatic, if you want fancy language for it. But nonetheless, I trust they are of interest and that they will be helpful as we continue to engage with this mysterious fourth gospel, the gospel of John, seeking new insights and understandings. I think it's important that we start by reminding ourselves that not one of the gospels is agenda-free. Each of the writers has selected and presented those parts of the stories of Jesus that best support the understanding of him they want to share with others. So, for example, it's no accident that Matthew's birth narrative and the account of Jesus' trials in the wilderness carry clear echoes of the Moses story, because that's the lens through which he wants his readers to view Jesus. And likewise, in Luke, the Nazareth Manifesto and the numerous healing miracles reflect his interests and aims. Whilst the Gospel of John is stylistically very different from the others and certainly has the most overt expression of his worked-out understanding of Jesus, I think we need to be a little bit carefully lest we deduce that he is the only one who is very clear in his theology of Christ. I think all four Gospel writers are clear in their theology of Christ. They just choose to tell the story differently. Certainly, John's style very overtly expresses his understanding, but I'm not sure that automatically makes him more dogmatic. When we come to read the Gospels, usually we assume the chronology of the three synoptics is the historically correct one. And the justification for this, basically, is that there are three of them. Even though you don't have to look very hard to work out that both Matthew and Luke have plagiarized large chunks of Mark good job they weren't submitting them for assessment, I suspect. They've swapped a few things around and they've woven in other stories and comments that fit what they want to share with the story of Jesus. One of the commentaries I looked at this week noted that it's possible, if never ultimately demonstrable and almost certainly unlikely, that actually it's John's chronology that's correct and not the other three. I don't think many of us would be convinced by that hypothesis. But it does serve as a reminder that when we come to Scripture, we do so with all sorts of unconscious presuppositions and assumptions, which, 
even if widely accepted, and even if part of the traditional teaching of the church cannot ultimately be proven one way or the other. Sometimes it's good for us to play around with other ideas and interpretations, even if we end up rejecting them. In so doing, we may discover something helpful, useful, or important. The fourth gospel is a book of the Bible that seems to divide opinion. Some people absolutely love it. They love the poetry of the prologue. They love this mysterious and enigmatic Jesus who seems to be fully in control of his own destiny. And they delight in the unique material it contains. Others, on the other hand, loathe it. They spot hints of anti-Semitism. See a Jesus who lacks authentic humanity, who seems to glide through his passion without a hitch. And a theology too tidily honed with little room for manoeuvre. Both of those are defensible. I could point you to commentaries which take both of those views. But I think that both of them lead to a view of the gospel that's too narrow and ironically too confident, as if it's all sewn up. We know what this gospel is all about and there's nothing new for it to tell us. I'd like to suggest that by stepping back a little bit and then reflecting on the signs chosen by the author, there is something that even if it's not new, perhaps it's a little bit less well known and we can discover it. I suspect most of you are well aware of the basic structure of the gospel, but I'm pretty forgetful, so there's no harm in reminding ourselves of it. Basically, it's divided into four sections. There is the prologue with its majestic poetry and resonance with the beginning of the book of Genesis. It's mysterious and it's beautiful. It evokes a sense of wonder as the reader wonders, well, what's going to happen next? in this story. And then we have what is often referred to as the book of signs, which is roughly the first 12, 13 chapters. A collection of material centred on carefully selected incidents, most of which are unique to this gospel, and each followed by a dialogue involving Jesus that somehow relates to the sign that has happened. And these dialogues are incredibly rich, We meet Jesus engaged in deep theological conversations with people. He has a deep theological conversation with a five times married Samaritan woman he meets at a well. And a deep theological conversation with Martha of Bethany, who is grieving the death of her brother. You won't find those in the other synoptic gospels. And then comes the book of glorification, the account of the passion and resurrection of Jesus, which actually, if we expect it more closely, is less serene and more authentically human than perhaps we first think. And then lastly is an epilogue, and possibly, I think, probably, giving some uncharacteristically clumsy repetition in words, a later addition to the Gospel, chapter 21, which talks of the reinstatement of Peter. The end of chapter 20 and the end of chapter 21 are almost identical in their words, which suggests that the second one was added on later. And so today our focus is on the book of signs, 
usually defined as running from the middle of chapter 1 to the end of chapter 12. Before we go further, though, I think we do well to notice that this gospel explicitly refers to these events as signs and not miracles, contra the good news translation, but never mind. Throughout this gospel, sorry, throughout all the gospels, we find references to signs and wonders, suggesting that there is a distinction between the two something that probably has become obscured or lost over the centuries and is probably why the good news chose to use the word miracle in its translation. But the distinction is important and John's use of the word sign is relevant because by definition, a sign points beyond itself to its source or its origin. The signs here are pointers to the identity of the man Jesus and are recorded, according to the summary in John 20, in order that you may believe, or in order that you may continue to believe, because the Greek word here is in what is known as the continuous. It's an active continuous verb. The point of these events is not their wow factor, but their hmm factor. Not that they are amazing in and of themselves, but that they make you think. Like many of you, I've read John's Gospel many, many times, but I've rarely, if ever, stopped to think about the kinds of things he includes, or more specifically, the kinds of things he excludes. Unlike the three synoptic Gospels, the fourth Gospel has no accounts at all of exorcisms and no references to people affected by leprosy. And although that's not our focus today, it's worth wondering, isn't it, why does he deliberately exclude such references when he's trying to think of signs that signpost the reader to the nature of Jesus? Why is he not bothered about exorcism? Why is he not bothered about lepers? For that matter, why is he not bothered about a birth story? But what are the signs that he chooses? It won't surprise you, I'm sure, to know that although there are traditionally seven that are identified, it's a kind of a nice biblical scriptural number, a sort of holy number, not all scholars agree on that list, and some scholars even identify an eighth sign in the epilogue. So this is the usual list. I'll step back so that people on that side can can see. The usual list of the seven signs is the water into wine at the wedding at Cana, the healing of the official's son, also at Cana, the healing of a paralytic man at Bethsaida, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water, the healing of a man born blind, and the raising of Lazarus. These usually are the seven signs identified within John's Gospel. But it's never going to be that straightforward. Some of the schemes exclude the walking on the water. And I have to say, having looked at stuff this week and reflected on it, I think they could well be right. They include instead the resurrection of Jesus as a seventh sign. 
And maybe that makes more sense. Maybe the final conclusive sign that Jesus is who the writer believes him to be is his defeat of death. And then the eighth sign, or is it the ninth sign, that some commentators identify is the miraculous catch of fish in chapter 21, the epilogue and quite possibly a later edition. I find that intriguing and a little bit curious, the idea of a post-resurrection sign. I think that's quite a useful way of looking at it, something definitely worth pondering on, but clearly it was not necessary for the original intent of the gospel. So then, we have seven or eight or nine signs. I suspect nowadays we'd be less concerned with how many there were than our forebears for whom numerology was a significant, if subtle, and even possibly subliminal attraction. As I pondered those signs, a lot of common factors struck me, which seemed quite interesting and worthy of further reflection. Each sign involves a direct interaction between Jesus and very precisely identified individuals. At Cana, Mary first approaches Jesus, and after that it's the stewards, the wine steward, sorry, the servants, the wine steward, and the bridegroom who are involved. At Bethsaida, it is one paralyzed man. In the feeding of the 5,000, it is Philip, Andrew, and a small boy, and so on. Distinct characters in each story. And for the most part, these are ordinary people whose names we never learn, who are just going about their everyday lives. And although Mary and the official whose son was sick approach Jesus directly, the majority of them don't. Rather, it is Jesus who initiates the conversation and the contact. The boy with the picnic, the paralyzed man at the pool, The blind man who is begging, they're just going around their ordinary everyday lives when Jesus breaks into their experience. And although both the wedding feast and the feeding of the 5,000 impact huge numbers of people, the focus is very, very precise. Jesus seems pretty much uninterested in mass appeal. He focuses attention on seemingly insignificant individuals. And I think that perhaps is something that's encouraging for us. We may feel utterly insignificant and unimportant, but the God revealed in Jesus is interested in people like us and may even sometimes seek us out when we're not expecting it. It is, of course, legitimate to read these stories seeing the individuals as mere props or visual aids for Jesus to demonstrate who he is. And there are some commentators who take that viewpoint. But the more I study them, and despite some of John's internal commentary, notably about the blind man, I think I find softer and kinder ways of reading those stories that see an interest in the individual. The second thing that really strikes me in each of these events is that action is expected on the part of those involved. The servants are sent with jars to fill them up with water. It's a huge undertaking. It would have taken hours. 
The blind man is sent off to wash at a distant pool and then to come back. The disciples are told to organize the crowd ahead of the distribution of food and then to gather up the remnants afterwards. Even the dead Lazarus is expected to be active. He's told to get up and come out of the tomb. It is this activity, this participation of the individuals that strikes me so much. Jesus doesn't just come along, speak a word and whoosh, the wine is replenished. Loaves and fishes aren't created out of nothing for the crowd. They are taken, willingly or otherwise, from a small boy. One of the traps that sometimes Christians fall into is expecting God to magically make everything all right with no effort on their part. And another trap is to think that God will do nothing, that somehow we've just got to get on and sort it all out ourselves. But neither of those extremes is what we see here. It seems that both faith and action are required. There is a link between the doing and the believing. Lastly, each of the signs is a prompt for a dialogue, a conversation and some reflection. As I've already said, the the signs are not there for the wow, but the hmm. In and of themselves, they're mysterious and wonderful. But more important is the impact they have on the thinking of those who observe or hear of them. Experience itself can make strong evoke can evoke strong emotions and reactions. But reflected upon, it has the potential to inform and transform our thinking and action. The conversations in the fourth gospel that are set alongside or in between these signs illustrate, I think, for us, the place of honest engagement, open questioning, and expressions of doubt. Think of the story of Nicodemus or the woman of the well, or even of Thomas. These people ask questions, express doubt, and they grew through that. If we're looking for a practical response to what we've explored today, maybe it is to take time or make time to reflect on our experiences, to try to spot any moments that may speak to us of the nature of God or the work of Christ. Or indeed to find ourselves questioning either of those, honestly and expectantly, seeking new insights and understandings that will go on shaping our lives. Seven, eight, nine signs. Events involving people that... I'll say that again. Seven, eight or nine signs. Events involving seemingly insignificant overlooked individuals suggesting that perhaps they are signposts to a God who cares about the little people, the unnoticed people. Seven or more signs, events in which ordinary people had to play their part, suggesting perhaps that they are signposts to a God who expects us to play our part in bringing to reality the good we desire. Seven signs. Seven things that make you go, hmm. Conversations and reflections on what they might signify and suggest. Perhaps signposts to a God who delights in our honest wrestling with ideas 
and the transformative potential of all experience. May we, like the small boy who offered his picnic to Jesus, find our own place in the continuing story of a God who sometimes speaks in wonders and who always speaks in Jesus. Hymn number 101. Lord, you sometimes speak in wonders. Let us pray. O God, we ask your blessing on those who suffer in mind or body. You never promised a life free from suffering. You never promised your church a mission free from persecution. You never promised an easy path. We pray for those who live in fear because they have chosen to follow you. We pray for those who have been forced to choose between you and their family or friends. 
where there is persecution, hardship, and suffering, may the church also be filled with your spirit. Allow us to see your image in the suffering church, to be challenged by the faithfulness of those who suffer, and to learn from their love for you. We pray for those who feel forsaken or betrayed, and for those who, having worked or struggled, have nothing to show for it. We pray for victims of injustice. O God, we pray for the world, the world in which Jesus lived, which he loved and taught us how to love, and for which he died. May those in pain find you in their pain, within their fear and sadness. Finding you, may they find healing for their hurts, love for their fear, peace for their distress. We pray for the community in which we worship. We pray for the other churches and Christian groups in this city. May their lives of worship and service be used for you, guided by your spirit, and may they be filled with the joy of your risen son. May may we all be brought into deeper partnership as we celebrate and share and serve you together. We pray for the places of education in this city. May all who learn there be prized May education be valued and the best of our understanding be passed on. We pray for those employed in this city. May their work add value to their lives and those of others. We pray for those who serve. May they, together with all who live here, help this to be a community where need is met and hope is given. May our city be a place of compassion, justice, and vision. May your will, Lord God, be done, and your love be active in our community and in us. Amen.
loving, generous, kind and gracious God, we bring these gifts of money, offering them for your service and with them offering ourselves and our ongoing prayers. Accept them, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. I realised when I came to the PowerPoint that the last hymn today is the same one as I picked three weeks ago. So it must have just been a really good song to sing, I reckon. I don't normally repeat them quite that quickly. Uh, But it seems to be a, a great song to go out with. We are called to be God's people, showing by our lives his grace, one in heart and one in spirit, a sign of hope for every race. equips and sends us. As we step out of this place to continue our endeavour to be signs of hope to others, bless us with the assurance that you are indeed merciful and kind, the still point in the midst of a chaotic and disordered world, and the hope to which we direct our gaze. Remind us of this today and every day. <laughs> 